We're all in debt traps because we've all been spending like drunken sailors while money was cheap to borrow. Now that interest rates are rising, it's a very different thing. So there are huge systemic risks in the whole system. And I think it would be very brave of anyone to point to one particular risk which is going to trigger the collapse in all the others. All I can say is this is a risky um, and unpleasant situation. This is Kaiser Johnson with Liberty and Finance, and this is the Miles Franklin Weekly Special for January 17th through January 24th, 2023, while supplies last. This week we feature our choice 10-ounce silver bars at just $2.25 over spot per ounce and backdated quarter-ounce Canadian maple scruffies at only 4% over spot. Frequently you have to choose between high-volume bars like 1,000-ounce bars to get exceptionally low premiums or pay a higher premium for more liquidity. But these Our Choice 10-ounce silver bars come from major mints, are three nines fine, and provide a great way to stack quickly while maintaining a high degree of liquidity, all at the low premium of just $2.25 over spot per ounce while supplies last. Next, we have quarter-ounce gold maple scruffies at 4% over spot. The Royal Canadian Mint packages quarter-ounce maples in sheets, which most people find inconvenient for storage, trade, or transacting, so they frequently remove them and put them in individual flips or in tubes. As soon as the packaging is removed, they go from being considered brilliant uncirculated to what is called scruffy condition. They may occasionally have a nick or scratch, but by and large are in excellent shape and nearly indistinguishable from their brilliant uncirculated counterparts. And the best part is that these so-called scruffy coins are available at just 4% over spot, much less than the 10 to 15% that you would ordinarily pay for the increased liquidity of quarter-ounce gold. So if you'd like to purchase 10-ounce silver bars at just $2.25 over spot, quarter-ounce Canadian maple scruffies at only 4% over spot, or if you'd like to inquire about any of our other products or services, call us at 1-888-815-4237. That's 1-888-81-LIBERTY. We're available after hours and on weekends, and we look forward to speaking with you. Welcome back to Liberty and Finance. We're always privileged to have this distinguished returning guest. Alistair McLeod is the head of research at goldmoney.com. He's a former bank director and brings an insider's perspective into the workings of the world's banking system, which he follows closely. He's joining us again this Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. Alistair, thanks for coming back on Liberty and Finance. That's very much my pleasure, Donegan. I apologize in advance for my uh, froggy voice, but uh, I'm just getting over a cold, and so we'll have to bear with me. I have nothing I can do about this. So anyway, uh wanted to talk with you about something that's very uh, current in the news right now. Uh, Michael Pento, money manager, alerted me this uh, week to the Bank of Japan making a rather dramatic statement about no longer being uh, planning on defending their yield curve, which they've been retreating from lines in the sand over time. On uh, can you bring us up to date on what's going on uh, with with the Japanese banking system and why that everyone should be paying attention to that? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's um, it they, they aren't abandoning yield curve control. Um, I think that I should make that clear. What they did was they raised the level, um, the upper limit of intervention from a quarter of a percent to half a percent. Now, the problem was that the the uh, yield on the 10 year rose above their uh, level. And um, the effect of that was really, particularly in the um, uh, in the swaps market, which indicated that the level should be 1%. That's for the yield on the 10-year. 
Um, and uh, so we had um, the Bank of Japan stepping in with an announcement, trying to sort of cool things down, saying that, um, you know, they were going to sort of effectively ease off, um, bearing in mind that the um, – uh, the yen exchange rate to the dollar had moved from about 150 down to, well, we're currently 128 or something, I think. Uh, so you can see that they were trying to put a message over that, um, you know, that the, the, the situation, um, doesn't really warrant higher rates than that. And I think it's a combination of, um, people having taken positions, closing those positions, in effect, uh, you know, uh, uh, selling the yield down uh, and um, uh, perhaps the Bank of Japan intervening as well to give it extra momentum. So uh, for the moment, panic over. And I think I'm right in saying that the current yield um, has fallen from around about 0.6 down to 0.425. I had that just a moment ago. Um this actually is very important. I don't think this problem is over yet because um, the rate of inflation, consumer price inflation, is in the order of, I think, of about 4%, something like that, which compares with their target of 2%. So um, to have a 10-year bond yielding um, as little as 0.4 or 0.5% is obviously crazy. That's That's a complete mispricing in the market. But we have a situation where a lot of the debt in Japan um, is very short term. And it's been like that because they've had zero or negative interest rates for over a decade now, well over a decade. So it has encouraged everyone in there trying to raise funds for whatever purpose, whether it's the government to spend more than it um, receives in taxes or whether it's corporations or whatever. They are very uh, highly exposed to short-term interest rates. So consequently, it was very important for the Bank of Japan to try and stabilize the situation. Otherwise, and particularly if interest rates rose further, it would create real distress amongst these very, very heavily indebted um, borrowers. So that's one thing. Now, there is another aspect of this which we've got to think about, and that is that the global carry trade basically – um, shorts the yen and goes long of dollars. Why? Because there's a yield pickup from, well, it was, you know, a bit below zero up to um, whatever the dollar is yielding at any particular time. So you can see that, um, you know, if you're a hedge fund, uh, we just take the current rate. So you're looking at about 0.46. And if I very quickly look to see what the yield is on the 10-year US, I mean, so you've got a 3% pickup, you know, three whole percent that's not to be sneezed at so what do you do you go in and you gear your position up maybe 10 times you got a 30 percent return you know so you can see the attractions of the carry trade that's actually what this is about that is being unwound um and it's that that is leading to the weakness in the dollar uh which this morning got down on the trade weighted down to one one and a half, one one point six. It's bounced a bit now. Um, so, which you know, again, that's just sort of market noise, really. But that is why the dollar's weak because there has been unwinding of this carry trade position. And I suppose the hope is, um, you know, amongst the dollar bulls, that this unwinding of the carry trade, um, you know, might stop now that the Bank of Japan has regained control over its yield curve. 
So, you know, there's sort of big things happening here. The other thing which is happening under underneath it, and it's not directly related to this, is that Japanese institutions, which are great exporters of capital, being the counterparty of the, the of the trade position, being the counterpart of uh, Mrs. Watanabe, who's a great saver, you know, they've got a good savings ratio in Japan, um, all that capital export. Now what they're doing is they're pulling it back in. Why? Because with rising interest rates, rising bond yields around the world, you have got bear markets in bonds in particular, and dare I say, bear markets in equities on the back of that. So, you know, if you're a Japanese investor and you've moved money abroad, you know, to try and benefit from yield pickup, maybe also from um you know, the, the possibility that uh, there is a sort of continual bull market in financial assets, then you're going to unwind it. And uh, there's been reports of substantial unwinding uh, of Japanese investment in the French uh, bond market. Um, I don't think it's confined to the French bond market at all. So potentially, I think we've got to watch this situation very, very carefully because potentially it is destabilizing for global finance. You've been cautioning us about lack of stability or at least the risk and exposure to uh, vulnerability in the banking system for some time now. If you could bring us up to date with your latest view on that, I'm sure it's something that you continually research. Uh, people in the U.S. are becoming increasingly nervous. There was a video that was supposedly leaked about uh, two or three weeks ago of an FDIC meeting where an individual uh, attending the meeting, a member of the FDIC, was actually talking about the unintended consequences that may occur if there were public, publicly announced uh, awareness of the risks or the, or the inability of FDIC to cover deposits and that this could result in runs on the banks and bail-ins and that sort of thing. And the, it went farther than that, saying that uh, runs on the banks are are probably going to happen and bail-ins are probably going to happen, but that it would be unintended consequences to inform the public of that rather than when it's happening, rather than just the very largest of money managers. Anyway, that's just a little bit of color there, why people in the U.S. are, are particularly nervous at this point uh, about something you've been telling us to watch watch out for for some time. Yeah, you heard it on your channel first, I think. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Um yeah, I wouldn't worry about the FDIC not being able to cover because basically what happens is that um, it is a it is a primary function of a central bank to ensure the integrity of the commercial banking system. So, you know, my view is that the Fed will move heaven and earth to ensure that's the case. They are not going to make the mistakes they made with um, uh, uh, with Lehman. You know, the idea that we've got to show them that, you know, you can't just behave like this and get away with it. It was the sort of thing they were talking about. They needed a sacrifice, they felt. But that was so destabilizing. I mean, I think that um, greater sense will prevail in the central banks. But the other side of that, of course, is that... Um, uh, infinite um, check writing, if you like, by the Fed um, uh, must accompany any such rescue. 
And that, of course, is very highly inflationary. <clears throat> and I would draw a distinction between the inflation of commercial bank credit, which um, certainly has an economic effect and it certainly has a price effect. But the price effect of that is considerably less than the equivalent expansion of credit from a central bank, whether that's in the form of notes or um, other other um, means of expanding its balance sheet like QE and so on and so forth, um, is immaterial. The effect of that, I mean, this is why we've got an inflation problem, for goodness sake. We had QE uh, through uh, COVID, through supply chains, and, you know, and then along comes this Russian problem, which just basically translates all that into energy prices. And people suddenly wake up and think, oh, my goodness. But what it's, you know, the reason these prices are rising is that the money, or if you like, the currency is being created by the Fed and uh, um, you know, it's, it's fellow central bankers in the Western Alliance, basically, to, um, you know, try and sort of make the system look entirely okay and encourage people to rush out and spend and continue to act as if nothing was happening. I'm afraid that it's payback time in that sense. So, um, but as to the, the, the point, I think, uh, it's interesting that Ken Rogoff, who, um, I would say is not exactly a sound money man. Um, you know, he's an establishment uh, economist was warning that, uh, you know, if the Fed does pursue uh, tighter monetary policy, then there is going to be a very, very severe problem and uh, a systemic one at that. Um, he also warned about the situation in Europe. Um, and uh, interestingly, Christian Lagarde seems to have backed off a little bit. But, you know, come on, we still have a problem that inflation is running in Europe. At, you know, depending which country you're talking about, anything up to 10 percent. Um, and, uh, you know, the the um, uh, interest rate on, you know, on, on from the from the ECB is still. In the order of a percent or two, I can't remember exactly what it is because these things are changing all the time. But you can see that uh, the yield and the bonds are still way, way too low. But particularly somewhere like Italy. Italy is in an enormous debt trap. And I have to say that other countries in the EU are also in debt traps. We're all in debt traps because we've all been spending like drunken sailors while money was cheap to borrow. Now that interest rates are rising, it's a very different thing. So there are huge systemic risks in the whole system. And I think it would be very brave of anyone to point to one particular risk which is going to trigger the collapse in all the others. All I can say is this is a risky, um, an unpleasant situation. And I also see that Nouriel uh, Roubini, um, uh, another economist, has uh, come out and, 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 and made a statement which should worry people, and that is this whole idea of inflation being transient. Uh, forget, you know, he reckons that higher uh, rates of inflation are going to be around for some time yet. So, um, you know, you, you look at these establishment economists, they're getting the message which you and I have been talking about for the last year. You know, finally, they're beginning to understand it. And I think that people are going to listen to it. And as to your point about FOMC discussions being leaked and all the rest of it, they must be terrified. I mean, they've got this awful uh, dilemma. You know, do they try and conquer inflation or do they try and rescue the economy, which is tipping into recession? They can, you know, they can see which way this is going. They've got intelligence, which they're not sharing with us. They're bound to have that.
They talk to commercial bankers. They know what the loan position is. They know that bank credit uh, is, well, I mean, the trouble with bank credit is you can't actually physically contract the deposits. But what you can do is is uh, reduce the risk. So what you do is you stop lending to businesses which might fall over if there is a further rise in interest rates and redeploy the asset side of your balance sheet to less risky um, investments. And that's probably government debt, short term government debt, because you don't want anything longer because the price just, you know, undermines, you know, you've got to mark to market this. And so you're going to be buying treasury bills, um, you know, six month bills, one year, probably at the the max. So that changes the whole funding um, uh, uh, paradigm as well. And um, so the idea that you can reduce the cost of funding by yield curve control, I mean, to an extent, but really rather a limited extent, because the funding is getting more and more short term. And, of course, you've got other problems with um, the uh, derivatives markets. And we've talked before about the enormous quantity of um, OTC derivatives, um, you know, forwards and uh, swaps and uh, so on and so forth. And um, I don't know if I've mentioned it on, on your show before, but uh, the Bank of International Settlements came out um, quantifying a little bit something that I've been talking about, and that is that uh, where you have currency swaps and currency forwards, they should be included on bank balance sheets as part of their assets and liabilities. Instead, what they do is they merely include the the, the market value of those positions um, insofar as they can mark them to market or they mark them to myth if they can't mark them to market. But at the end of the day, there's a liability there. And we're talking about um, on uh, the Bank of International Settlements estimates around about $80 trillion of these currency swaps and forwards with the dollar on one side of them. So we come back, we circle back to this um, uh, 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 yen situation where people have been um, selling yen to buy dollars. Why? Because they want the yield pickup. They've got, you know, we can see there's 3% on a 10-year bond, you know, the differential on a 10-year bond. So, uh, but this is huge, huge money. So, yes, I mean, if you're sitting there in the Fed looking at all these numbers and thinking, oh, my goodness, we've got to raise interest rates because we have an inflation problem. But we can't raise interest rates because we'll destabilize the whole financial system. So what do we do? Well, perhaps the only thing we can do is to threaten to raise rates, talk about it, and hope that that deflates, if you like, the level of demand in the economy so that we have less of an inflation problem and we can perhaps pivot from QT towards QE with, um, uh, if you like, some conviction as far as the markets are concerned. I think that's what they're doing. But it's a very worrying time for central bankers. I mean, make no mistake about it. One of the things that you mentioned in there, uh, I don't think gives a lot of comfort to people in the U.S. that have uh, awareness of the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act, because after the global financial collapse of 2008, where where there were direct bailouts of the banks by the Fed printing, we were told originally 400 billion. Oh no, it's 800 billion. Oh no, it ends up being 16 trillion or so by the time it was both domestic and international. Who knows what the real number really is? But uh, but the Dodd Frank bill turned into law 2010. The Dodd Frank Act said, okay. 
The government's not going to take it on its shoulders anymore for bailing out the banks. We're not going to bail them out the banks. Next time it's going to be the bail-ins to the uh, for the depositors uh, who are unsecured creditors of the banks. That's, I think, one of the things that's got people with cold, cold bumps on the back of their neck now in the U.S. is thinking that if the banks get in trouble, it won't be the Fed coming to the rescue with this infinite uh, bailout money like you described, but it'll be coming right out of their own pockets. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, large depositors and bondholders. All I can do is pray that they don't go down that route because it would be absolutely disastrous. Uh, Central banks do have uh, the flexibility to either bail in or bail out. They must do whatever is best at the time. And the one thing I'm absolutely certain of is that would not serve the public interest to do bail ins. Uh, simply because of what you were mentioning. I mean, this is how, you know, how, how are you going to, um, I mean, how can you make people more frightened by threatening a bail-in? It's ridiculous. So what are you going to do? I mean, if you've got deposits at Wells Fargo, for example, which is generally reckoned to be not the safest bank, I'm not saying that it's an unsafe bank, but I think what I, how I've described it, I think is probably fair in the market sense. You have a deposit there. What are you going to do? Um, shift it over to JP Morgan because you know that JP Morgan is so big. <laughs> it's the main means of the Fed's communications with the commercial banking network. I mean, surely that should be all right. If you are um, a very large um, depositor, such as a money market fund or something like that, then you're already ramping it into the um, uh, into into the Fed's reverse repo facility. Um, so, so uh, I mean that's over two trillion now. Um, I think it's actually over two trillion for slightly different reasons. But you can see that um, any any discussion at, at anything approaching an official level bringing up the subject of bail-ins as you know a possibility, however remote, I think just adds to um, destabilizing the whole the whole system. I think it's absolutely crazy. I've always thought that, and I still think that. As far as the bondholders are concerned, look at the position of a bondholder in, say, um, a bank like um, uh, like Wells Fargo. I mean, you know, as soon as you see maybe a small bank go under, what do you do? You think... God, we've got to, you know, we've got to get, we've got to sell these things. And if we're going to have anything in terms of uh, um, loans to banks which are not deposits, then uh, it can only be with um, J.P. Morgan, you know, perhaps Bank of America, perhaps Citibank, wherever we've got an account which we deem to be a whole lot safer. So you would create a run on the weaker banks. And that's why it would be plainly ridiculous. And I'm sure that many, many of your viewers actually do understand that point, which is why you mentioned it in the first place. Well, that's the concern. <laughs> and even as even as we talk this through, it's not very comforting at all, because uh, the, the thought that the banking system uh, would be destabilized if people realized how unstable it is. <laughs> it's like, oh, boy. Um, so 
okay, one more dynamic that we haven't discussed directly here today that I'd like to get a, a quick update on, and that is this whole east-west split that you've spoken of uh, that's been really the talk of the town for, for now the last couple of quarters, and that's this uh, BRICS Plus uh, eastern block that's been creating their own financial future, frankly, uh, monetary future uh, based on commodities, based on gold, the, the shift of physical gold leaving LBMA and, and COMEX and heading over to the east. Uh, can you give us your view of what you think is, what are the big the big trends that are happening there and any particular uh, points of current observation that you think people need to be aware of as far as where we're at in that process? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been warning for some time that um, there is a fundamental shift moving from fiat currencies, which are backed by faith and credit in the government and nothing else, towards currencies which are perceived to have more backing. Um, and that is now happening. In fact, today uh, we have um, a Saudi minister standing up at the World Economic Forum saying um, that they are now prepared to accept payment in other currencies than the dollar. So confirming what we know that President Xi uh, was talking about um, when he uh, went to Saudi Arabia in December, in earlier December, the agreements that came out of that, and furthermore, the speech which he made addressing the wider Gulf Cooperation Council um, about the facilities which they might expect if they accepted uh, renminbi uh, in settlement for oil. And those facilities include not only, you know, deposit facilities, whatever, but most of that is get, would be recycled in the form of investment in um, their counterparties. So Saudi Arabia, for example, probably end up with a trade surplus of maybe three, four, five billion dollars uh, equivalent. No more than that. No more than that because of the inward investment from China. And as to the balance, it was becoming clear that um, it would be open to them to use the financial markets in China to buy into, for example, gold by selling renminbi. Now, the it's a it's it's a fascinating situation. This because we know um, uh, the, you know sort of the Triffin dilemma that. Uh, says that in order to create a, um, a reserve currency and ensure there is a supply of a reserve currency, what you have to do is you have to run your economy into the ground. Basically, you've got to have, um, you know, a major deficit on the balance of payment or sorry, on, on the trade uh, so that people can hang on to your dollars. Um, and, um, you know, the way you do that basically is by discouraging savings and having um, a, a large budget deficit. In other words, you run your economy irresponsibly. And that's basically what America has done to ensure there has been the supply of dollars. What we're now emerging into is a world where central banks no longer will place a premium on having currency reserves, foreign currency reserves. They're going to wind those down because there's no point in having them. And as uh, President Putin said at the um, uh, the, the uh, St. Petersburg um, uh, International Forum back in June, if you hold on to dollars or euros, you're using losing 8% per year. Now, that was at the time was the loss of purchasing power measured by the 
consumer price indices and the two respective currencies. Um, it's sort of not far from that in the dollar now, going down a bit less maybe, but you, you know, you get the point. Now, there were 81 different official delegations from governments all around the world at that conference, and they got that message loud and clear. Putin then went on to say, and furthermore, the Americans can quite simply make your reserves completely worthless at the stroke of a pen. They know that. Now, given the shift away from the, I mean, if you like, the the, um, the limited time that the petrodollar has left and the emergence of the petro yuan, that changes the dynamics in terms of the central banks and what reserves they're going to hold. So what are they going to do? They're going to reduce their dollar holdings. That is for sure. And furthermore, bear in mind that not only central banks, but also um, investing institutions and all the rest of it, Japan, we come back to Japan, have portfolio investments in uh, Wall Street, um, in addition to bonds of around about $12 trillion. Uh, you know, that's, that's how much of your, your stock market the foreigners own. Why should they own it? If we're in a bear market, a bear market, which is pretty certain because what do we see? Rising bond yields, rising bond yields equals falling bond values and falling equity values. So why hold them? I mean, when you get this situation and a recession coming up as well as a foreigner, you know, you're not interested in having, you know, all your money at risk or a significant slug of your money at risk in a foreign market over which you got no control. No, you liquidate it. So you can see that the pressure is coming onto the dollar and it is, it is, it is very much um, a consequence of two things. First of all, what's happening to the interest rate trend, which has reversed from its long-term downtrend. That is now definitely the case. And secondly, the politics of the situation mean that um, capital is returning to the east. It's going to Asia and it's flooding out of countries like America, the EU and other members of the Western Alliance. And uh, that second point we've rather brought upon our, uh, ourselves. I mean, look at it also from the S Saudis' point of view. Where is their business in future? In this country here, we are going to stop selling new motors with, uh, with diesel and petrol engines in seven years' time, only seven years' time. We're not, you know, we, and it's the same around Europe. I mean, you know, the different European countries have different schedules, but you can see that this time of the end of uh, consumption of fossil fuels is coming up very fast in any geopolitical sense. What do they, what do the Saudis do? Where is their business going to come from? Well, it's quite simple. It's going to come from Asia where these guys, um, you know, the Chinese will pay lip service to to um, climate change and all the rest of it. Why? Because they can get some very good business out of it. But are they going to amend their own behavior? Are they hellers like? <laughs> They're certainly not. And not only that, but think of the Indians. You have poor people. Are they going to pay the price of our fancy ideas about climate change? No, they're not. And their governments aren't either. So the whole dynamic of the situation is the West is basically committing suicide from the energy point of view and giving an enormous opportunity to the whole of Asia in the process. 
So that, I think, is <laughs> very briefly is the update I can give you on uh, that east-west thing. But gold is interesting in this because of I would say two things. Gold is, um, I think, above anything else, um, an accurate representation of commodity uh, and raw material prices. That, I think, is very important to understand. Uh, and uh, the second thing about this is that um, if there is any um, increased uh, uh, stability offered to Asian currencies, it is likely to come from that from that source. Uh, and the reason I say this is that um, I find it unimaginable that the conversations between Russia and China um, did not include reassurances uh, that the renminbi would be a better currency to hold, a better currency to trade in than the dollar. Very important point, and uh, we mustn't overlook that. There's so much happening this year, it's almost unimaginable uh, what we may be in for. Certainly a lot of the things you've been warning us about for a long time are coming to fruition, and it uh, doesn't look good for the Western financial system at this point. Uh, thanks for your heads up there. And we want to have you back, I think, more often because things are moving faster and faster, it appears. If people want to follow your work on a daily and weekly basis, where should they go? Well, goldmoney.com. Um, I uh, write an article every, which is released every Thursday, sort of midday-ish, I suppose, um, uh, Eastern Standard. And I do a market report on the Friday as well. So um, that's where to go. And folks, if you don't want to miss a single episode with Alistair or any of our guests, make sure you subscribe for free to our daily email. That is at libertyandfinance.com, libertyandfinance.com. Put in your name, your email address, click submit. Make sure you confirm on the confirming email, and then you're in. You'll get one email per day in your inbox. It will have the latest interviews with Alistair and any of our other guests, as well as our weekly specials. Alistair, as always, we appreciate your presence here, giving us an insight we don't get from elsewhere uh, for all of our viewers on Liberty and Finance. That's very much my pleasure, Donegan. Miles Franklin Precious Metals is one of America's oldest and most trusted bullion dealers. Miles Franklin is A-plus rated and accredited by the Better Business Bureau, licensed and bonded, and has zero complaints ever registered. Here at Liberty and Finance, we are licensed brokers with Miles Franklin. To order, simply call us, discuss your needs, and we will let you know our live inventory, prices, and availability, and lock in your order over the phone. Once your order is locked, the price is held for you regardless of market fluctuations, and the metals are reserved for you awaiting your settled payment. Within one business day of ordering, you will receive an email invoice detailing the order and payment instructions. Miles Franklin accepts payments by Bankwire, ACH or electronic check, money order, check mailed priority mail, and cryptocurrency. The fastest forms of payment are Bankwire and cryptocurrency. Upon settled payment, metals will ship out within three to five business days. You will receive tracking information via email. Domestic shipping charges are $15 for any order under 500 ounces of silver or 10 ounces of gold. For orders larger than that, domestic shipping is free. The package will be double boxed, fully insured, and labeled discreetly, with no indication of the contents inside. For your privacy, the name Miles Franklin will not even be on the package. To talk to myself, Elijah, my brother Kaiser, or my father Dunnigan, call 1-888-81-LIBERTY. 
That's 1-888-815-4237. 